Well, good evening, Hallows Church. My name is Andrew, and I serve as a pastor here. And let me invite you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to Luke chapter 10, as I have the privilege of leading us through our study of the Scriptures tonight, Luke chapter 10. When you get there, put your finger on verse 25. That's the passage we'll begin looking at here in a moment. Um, you know, I'm sure you've heard, uh, you, can't, you don't have to listen too closely to hear all the clarion calls for people to engage in social justice concerns in our city and throughout our country and around the world. These clarion calls come from every corner of society. Uh, we hear these calls to engage in social justice concerns coming from media. We hear it coming from Hollywood. We hear it coming from politicians. We hear it coming from every facet of society, large businesses, small businesses. Everyone is championing various forms of social justice concerns and are expecting people to engage these concerns. And, and with these clarion calls, I don't know if you've, you've caught some of this as well, it, it sounds like with these clarion calls there tends to be uh, an air of judgment, of judgment coming with them as well so that everyone wants everyone to be excited about what they're excited about that I want you to grab my cause. And if you're not grabbing my cause, then there's something uh, less apt about you. And so everyone wants everyone else to be on board with their particular cause or with their particular concerns as these clarion calls for social justice and helping the hurting and engaging those who are struggling in society is, is coming from every direction. And as we listen to that, and we kind of hear, in some ways, even kind of feel some of the pressure of that, it's, the question for Christians is, well, where does our faith square in the midst of all of that? What is the relationship between the gospel we believe and the, the hurting needs that surround us that seem to plague society in a variety of ways? How does the gospel connect us to those needs? Does the gospel connect us to those needs? And if the gospel does connect us to those needs, how does the gospel compel us to engage in acts in our city and around the world that help the hurting, that go to the defense of the defenseless? And it's tonight where I want to explore the connection between our faith and the gospel and our concern and our, the strides we're going to take as followers of Jesus towards the world that is hurting all around us. And to see this connection, really the best place to go, and, or one of my favorite places to go, I probably shouldn't say best, but the, one of my favorite places to go in all of the scriptures is found here in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, in this, perhaps as you heard it being read a moment ago by our friend Megan, you, you heard a familiar story. You heard the story referred to as the parable of the, of the, of the Good Samaritan. Whether you've grown up in church or you're new to the church, you have heard this story. Whether you've never graced the church before, you have heard elements of this story. The, the parable of the Good Samaritan is a common, is a common uh, story in our culture and in our society. We even have laws on the books that are written after having been inspired by this story Jesus told. And it is certainly a story that, that stirs the hearts of people to exercise compassion trying to drive us towards caring for those who are broken and, and bewildered and struggling in the world that is. But what is sometimes the way this story in its power and in its focus doesn't come to bear on our hearts, it, it doesn't have its full effect if we only focus in on the story of the Good Samaritan and we don't detach it from the context in which it comes. Because this passage or that story is told in a conversation shared between Jesus and a lawyer. And it is a conversation that the lawyer started by asking Jesus a very, very important question. And this in question would drive the conversation towards identifying the love that God requires of human beings. Listen to how it goes down in verse 25. We are told that this lawyer stands up and he's seeking to put Jesus to the test. He has an agenda when he's asking this question. He asks a great question, but he asks it with an ulterior motive. He wants to test Jesus. He wants to lure Jesus into a debate that might somehow discredit Jesus in the eyes of the masses who are overhearing the conversation. 
And so he asks an important question. One might say the ultimate question, but he asks it with an ulterior motive. He's not really seeking answers from Jesus about this question. He's seeking certain kinds of answers. And, and as a lawyer, he knows the answers to the questions he's bringing to Jesus. You see, as a lawyer, this guy was not just a case trial lawyer. He wasn't an expert in Roman law or civil law. That word lawyer, it's referring to someone who is an expert in the Old Testament law. You might describe this guy who's asking Jesus this question as a seminary professor. This is someone who's thought a lot about the Old Testament. This is someone who could teach the Old Testament professionally, and perhaps he did teach the Scriptures professionally in some way, shape, or form. He was very, very knowledgeable. And so he comes to Jesus, again, not seeking answers from a sincere position. He comes to Jesus in order to test him, but notice again the question he asks. The question he asks Jesus is the ultimate question. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And whether he's asking it from a pure position or not, it's irrelevant. I want you to consider that question tonight. What must we do to inherit eternal life? And the reason I want you to think about that question is because that is the question that reverberates in the deep recesses of every human heart. The writer of Ecclesiastes in chapter 3 would say that God has put it into the heart of man. He has put eternity into the heart of every human being. There's a cultural philanthropist by the name of, by the name of, lost his name, George Murdoch, who back in the 1980s, he, he surveyed all these people groups and all these cultures all around the world. And over the course of his studies, he was trying to identify what are some universal principles, some universal similarities that are shared between all peoples in all places, presumably at all times. And he came up with this list of universals after a very in-depth study of various people groups all around the world. And in this list, the one factor that he found to be the same in every people group and in every culture is that every culture and every people group deals with questions related to eternity, although they deal with it in different ways. He's saying every people group and every culture asks this question and deals with this question in some discernible way. The question, good, the, question the lawyer is asking, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is the ultimate question. But I wonder, and I, I more than wonder, I worry if you and I do not, if we are living in a society and in a culture and in a, in a moment in time where this question is drowned out by so many other types of questions. We don't ask this question as often as we should. We don't contemplate this question as often as we should. We, we don't think about ultimate matters. Instead, we, we tend to think about temporary matters or trivial matters. The, the questions that tend to occupy our minds have to do more with our careers, have to deal more with our ambitions, have to deal more with our earthly desires. The questions that we entertain and that we uh, think about most often are questions like, well, will the Seahawks win out so they can make the playoffs? And we ask that question all day, every day, it seems. But, but I, my challenge to you, whether you are a follower of Jesus or whether you currently are not a follower of Jesus is to make this question a dominant question in your consuming your mind's attention and your heart's affections. Questions related to things that matter most. I mean, this question is dealing with life after death. It's dealing about with things like Jesus would refer to later, but heaven and hell. It's dealing with those types of matters. This is an ultimate question that every one of us needs to think about. Now, I know that when I pose that question or when this question is raised and you begin to think about heaven, you begin to think about eternity, you begin to think about ultimate matters. I know sometimes we get pushback for this in the church. There are some who like to say, well, Christians are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. They're always thinking about heaven. They don't care about life in this world. And, and so they're identifying this seemingly this seeming disconnect between heaven and earth, between eternity and the present, thinking we're so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. But what you're going to see in how Jesus addresses this question is the exact opposite. Jesus doesn't leave any room for anyone to put a wedge between thinking about eternity and the life you're going to live in the here and now. He's saying, no, 
It's almost as though if you can get this question right, if you can answer the question about your eternity and where your life is heading, that liberates you to live your life in the here and now in ways that are radically different from anyone else in this world. It's as though you're saying that if, I'm, if I know where my hope is found, then my hope isn't found in anything around me. So what does that free me up to do? It frees me up to be generous. It frees me up to make sacrifices. It frees me up to take risks. It frees me up to love people that nobody else wants to love. It really liberates me to engage in social justice with a backbone. Engage in social justice concerns that can actually carry through with commitments and carry through with our desires to see lives flourish in a fallen world so that we can sustain compassionate activity longer than you and I can sustain a clap in a worship song. You know, we, we, we give it a shot, don't we? We'll clap for about a verse and then we kind of get tired and we just kind of phase out. But here, well, I mean, I trust that we're sincere. Sing. I mean, you guys sing loud, and I love it. But we, we don't carry a clap very long, and we kind of get tired, right? Well, there's a sense in which you and I begin to think about, you and I begin to think about eternal life and where eternal life comes from and what does it mean to live towards the world that is to come. There's a sense in which that gives us backbone to engage this world with, ab- with utter resolve. So that we can care for people that nobody wants to care for. We can take risks that nobody else wants to take. We can sustain compassionate activity in this world because of how we answer the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So that's the question that's being raised to Jesus. And notice how he responds. He says to him, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He appeals to the lawyer's expert expertise, doesn't he? He's saying, look, you know the law. You know what is written in the Old Testament. How do you read it? How do you interpret it? How would you answer the question that you are asking? Now, the irony in this moment is that this lawyer, it is believed that lawyers such as this guy wore in the first century these little devices on their foreheads. They're called phylacteries. And and these devices carried within them a copy of the Shema, a copy of two verses that are fused together from the Old Testament. And so this lawyer is approaching Jesus and he's asking him a question while he's carrying the answers to his question on his forehead. And we know this by basically by how he responds to Jesus. How do you read the law? Or how do you understand? How do you, what does he say? What is written in the law? How do you read it? In verse 27, the guy responds. He summarizes the law. He says exactly what would have been carried around in this little box on his forehead. This he He says, Verse 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So he takes two passages, Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 and Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18 and he fuses them together, which was commonly done in the first century. Jesus would do it elsewhere as well, saying, look, this is the summation of the law. This is what God requires of every human being. If you want to know how to, what it takes to inherit eternal life, then here's the love that God requires. Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That is the love God requires. We know this because Jesus agrees with him. Not only is he summarizing the Old Testament, Jesus would affirm him in verse 28. And you have answered correctly. If you do this, you will live. How does that sound to you? Teacher, Jesus, tell me how I can inherit eternal life. And Jesus says, well, tell me what the law says, appeals to the scriptures. And he says, well, it seems that the scriptures say I'm supposed to love God completely and and I'm supposed to love people compassionately, that that's the love that God requires of me. How, How does that land with you? Does that encourage you or discourage you? Does that get you excited about your prospects to inherit eternal life? Or does that dampen them? Does that discourage them? Does that, in a sense, devastate them? You see, this is the principle that Jesus is affirming. The principle about the love that God requires. He's saying, on one hand, you, that a human being is to love their creator, love their God completely. That means you are to love God with undivided affections. But not only are you to love God with undivided affections... We are to love God with unrivaled affections. That means no other person, place, or thing in the universe should be on par with the love that we have for our God. That's what it means to love God completely. The thrust of it being summarized there in verse 27. But not only is it loving God completely, he brings this part in. And this part is what would really be expounded upon in the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
He says you are also to love people compassionately. Love your neighbor as yourself. That you are to share the, show the kind of concern for another human being as you, would, as you have for yourself. Love people compassionately. And both of these are fused together. Love God, love people. This is the love that God requires. Now when it comes to loving people compassionately, loving others in ways that we would naturally kind of care for ourselves, I think we get a picture of this when we consider kind of a, a dad's love for his child or a mom's love for her child. When you, you consider what links a mom or a dad would go through to care for their kids when they're hurting, to care for them when they're struggling, to, to show compassion to their children, it comes almost instinctively to every mom and dad. We want to do that. We look at our kids and we see ourselves there. We see flesh and blood there. They, they came from us and we're going to care for them as we would care for ourselves. Wednesday, I'm in the office right around the corner and, and I'm sitting there studying, looking, at, uh, looking over some things and I get a FaceTime message from Kim. And Kim never calls me on FaceTime, so I'm a little shocked and surprised. So I answer the call and to my horror, what I see is my little daughter Adeline, who's turning two in December, I see her face in the screen and, and a gash in her forehead, just a deep gash, blood everywhere. And I'm open this, I answer this call, I'm like, what is going on? And all I hear is, Kim, Kim, I think you need to come home. And before she even finished the sentence, I was out of my office. I left everything behind. I didn't lock my office. I sprinted as fast as I could to the car, jumped in, sped as quickly as I could from the office to my house, ran in so that she could get Adeline to the doctor to get her cared for. But what was happening in that moment? I didn't have to think about the concern that was needed because I was looking at my daughter who was hurting, right? I was thinking about my flesh and blood, my, my own child, and seeing her hurting in that way was an, prompted an instinctive reaction. I must go home. I must do whatever it takes to get to her so that she can be cared for, so that she can be taken care of. And so I did it without any thought to my computer. I did it without any thought to locking up my office and making it secure. I did it without any thought for pedestrians when I was driving my car to get to my house. I just wanted to get there, right? It was compassion for my child. It just came out instinctively. It came out naturally. But do you understand if we are hearing what Jesus is saying in what he's affirming in this passage? If you and I are to love people compassionately, if we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, do you understand the weight of that? The weight of that suggests that you and I are to love other people, even people we do not know, with the same level of concern and compassion that a mom has for a kid or a dad has for a child. This is the love that God requires. Love God completely, love people compassionately. And when he summarizes the language of love, Jesus isn't necessarily making eternal life accessible to fallen human beings. He's not making eternal life something that you can attain by how well your heart stirs when you think about God or how well your heart stirs when you think about people because chances are your heart does not stir as it ought when you think about God. And your heart doesn't stir towards people as you ought or as it ought. The love that God requires is an intense love. This is not a passage that you read listening to this exchange and think, I can do this. Eternal life is mine. I can attain that. I, I can love like this. But then again, that's kind of Jesus' point, right? Jesus is engaging this conversation in such a way that is intended to bring this lawyer to a point where he begins to feel the weight of God's law. That God's law, even when it is summarized in the language of love, that law is too heavy for any sinner to carry. A guy by the name of Timothy Keller wrote a book on this whole passage called Ministries of Mercy. I highly recommend it. Uh, but in this book, he tells a story about a young woman coming up to him and asking him the question, uh, well, if... If loving your neighbor as yourself means, if, if that meant that you should be just as excited for your neighbor when they succeed as when you succeed. And Keller responded, you know, I never thought of that, but 
But yes, that's a powerful application of this. And she said, that's a pretty unreasonable religion you have. That's pretty unreasonable. And to be honest with you, that woman and her response, it shows that she's on the right track. When you begin to hear this summation of the law, the love that God requires, and you begin to hear Jesus' affirmation, yes, if you do this, you will live. If you do this, you will have eternal life. When you really begin to listen to that and hear that, its weight will begin to bear down on you. And you will find God's law doing for you what God intends his law to do, for, to do in your life. The first purpose, the first goal of God's law in the life of every person, every human being created in his image, born outside of Eden, the first goal, the first purpose of God's law towards us is to expose us. It's supposed to expose that which is in us that needs to be eradicated. It's designed to expose that which is in us that doesn't live up to God's character and God's nature. And if God is love, then God's law is intended to show us how we do not love how we do not love God completely, how we do not love people compassionately. That's the weight that God's law law carries in our lives. And you begin to see this. The the lawyer begins to feel the pressure. He's heard Jesus' affirmation, and perhaps he's knocked off balance. Jesus didn't jump into a debate. In fact, he let the lawyer answer his own question, and he even affirmed the lawyer's answers. So the lawyer's like, what do I do? How am I going to trap him? He seems to be trapping me. How am I going to get him? He seems to be getting me because now I'm in the crosshairs. Now I don't know what to do. He's feeling the weight of the law. And listen to what he says in verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You see, there there are two ways we tend to respond to God's law when its weight begins to press down upon us. On one hand, many of us or many people They hear the weight, they feel the weight of God's law, and they just reject it. They reject it altogether. They say, well, God, that's unreasonable, that's too much. I'm just going to dismiss it. I'm not going to believe that that's really God's word written to me. I'm not going to believe that's really a reflection of its character. I'm going to reject God's law because it's too heavy. That's one way people tend to respond. But another way that people tend to respond is the way this lawyer is responding here. When we begin to feel the pressure of God's law upon our lives and it begins to to press down upon us, we might not reject it, but what we will do is try to reinterpret it. We will recalibrate it. We will try to reinterpret it or recalibrate it in a self-justifying way. Well, how can I think about God's law, even in its summation to love God completely and love people compassionately, how can I think about it or how can I apply it in a way that lightens the load in my life? This is essentially what the lawyer is trying to do. Who is my neighbor? If you can just define neighbor for me, then I'll know exactly who I'm supposed to love. And I'll know, by definition, who I'm not supposed to love, right? If you give me a definition for neighbor, then that gives me a limited scope to the love that I'm to show other people. It limits the type of people I am supposed to love. And the irony is, in the first century, Unfortunately, the Jewish people did this. They had an understanding of neighbor that betrayed the heart of their creator. They had this idea carried among uh, several camps of religious leaders in the first century Judaic world that said, you know, a neighbor was a fellow Jewish human being. That a neighbor isn't really Samaritans and it's not Gentiles, it's, it's fellow Jews. Jews are my neighbors. Those are the people that I'm really close to. Those are the ones that I run with through this world. So fellow Jews are my neighbor. But then there were another class that went one, one step further. And they said it's not enough to just define neighbor as a Jew. They would even say that's too broad. And so there was another line of teaching that said a Jew wasn't, or that a neighbor wasn't just a Jew. A neighbor was a righteous Jew. A good Jew, someone who kept the Sabbath, someone who observed God's law, someone who worshiped in the synagogue week in and week out. Those were the righteous Jews. Those were the good Jews. And those were the real neighbors that we were supposed to love. And so that understanding, that mentality was quite common in the first century Judaic world. And so even here, when he here, but it seems as though as, as the lawyers responding to Jesus' affirmation, He's starting to see, whoa, are we really interpreting this 
correctly? I'm not really thinking about neighbor rights. So he, in order to justify himself, perhaps he's wanting Jesus to affirm his understanding of neighbor. So he says, Jesus, would you tell me then who my neighbor is, just so we're on the same page? So I can be sure of who it is I'm supposed to love, and I can know who I don't have to love. And then it is in that context. It is in response to that question where Jesus gives this famous parable. This famous parable designed to show what love looks like in practice. So you have the love that God requires. Love God, love people. And then this story, which is designed to show this kind of love in practice. Check it out again in verse 29. Sorry, verse 30. In Jesus' response to the lawyer, he says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, the moment he began talking about this, uh, the, the, what Jesus is drawing on was very familiar to the lawyer and everyone else who was listening in. There was a road that moved down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was about 17 miles long, and you literally went down when you went from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem rested about 3,000 feet above sea level. Jericho was about 1,000 feet below sea level. So you went down about 4,000 feet when you would travel to Jericho. And this stretch of highway that people would travel regularly was notorious. It was occupied by groups of robbers and thieves, groups of gangs and terrorists, so to speak. They were organized and they, were, they wreaked a lot of havoc on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho. It was a common historical uh, fact. And so Jesus is drawing on that, but then he builds a story into it to, to make a lesson. So he says, imagine there was a man who was traveling this road that everybody's familiar with, and he fell among robbers, as people are prone to do on this road. And he says, these robbers then stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Then verse 31, he says, now by chance a priest, now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, you would expect Jesus in verse 31, the moment he identifies a priest, he would speak in favor of the priest, perhaps draw, write a story or tell a story that shows the priest caring for the person who is laying half dead in the middle of the street. After all, a priest, like the lawyer, would know God's law. A priest would know that he is to love God and love people. But what's going down here, the priest sees the man in need, and when he saw him, he decides to pass by on the other side. He doesn't do what's expected of him as a religious leader in the first century. He doesn't love his neighbor as himself in that moment. And the language is pretty colorful. It's not that he just passed by on the other side. It literally reads, he, went, he turned and went in the opposite direction. It's intense. It's a powerful image. But then right after Jesus talks about a priest, he says, likewise, a Levite. And a Levite was an assistant to the priest. He, too, would have served with the priest in the temple in Jerusalem. He would have coordinated worship services and done all those types of things. And, but this Levite, too, would travel this road. And, and when he sees the same thing that the priest saw, he passes by on the other side. He does exactly what the priest did. Neither man, neither one, although they knew the good they should have done, they do not do it. They refuse to love their neighbors in that moment. Now, what's interesting about the priest and the Levite is that they both know that they both knew that God's law would insist that they care for the needy, that they would help the hurting. God's law required that of them, but neither one of them do what's expected of them. And if you remember in the parable we looked at last week, the parable of the prodigal son, there was another guy who knew what was expected of him and didn't do it either, right? The older brother who was expected to go and look for the younger brother who was wandering away in the far country, but he doesn't do what's expected of him. What's needed is for another brother to come onto the scene. And so just hold on to that. You have this moment where two guys who know what's expected of them, neither one of them do it. And then Jesus turns the corner in verse 30. I'm sorry, verse 33. He says, but a Samaritan. And the moment he says that, every jaw drops. Everybody begins to get riled up. He, he says, but a Samaritan. So in contrast to the priest and the Levite, there's this Samaritan. And now Samaritans were despised by the Jews. Samaritans were viewed as mudblood, so to speak, of the, of, by the Jewish people. 
They were, for, they were Jews who mated with non-Jewish people and formed families, built a whole culture. They had their understanding of the Old Testament that didn't really jive with, with the, the Pharisees and the scribes and everyone taught in Jerusalem. They had their different traditions. And as a result, the Jewish people looked down upon them. They despised the Samaritans. They certainly would not have considered a Samaritan to be the protagonist or the hero of any parable. And yet this is precisely what Jesus does. He draws on, he makes a hero out of a Samaritan, one that all of the Jewish people despised and looked down upon. There were some Jewish writings coming out of the second, coming out of the second century referred to as the Mishnah. And the Mishnah carries with it a lot of Jewish teachings and traditions that, that, were, that had their root and their history back in the first century. And there's actually a prayer in the Mishnah that was common. Listen to this prayer, just to give you an idea of what they thought about Samaritans. A prayer that would be prayed on occasion. Bless, God, would you bless mom and dad, but don't remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. Bless mom and dad, but don't remember, remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. The idea is that they thought that if God did, then he wouldn't be a just God, and they didn't want that because the Samaritans weren't following God's law as they thought they should. But here you have this story where Jesus is showing a Samaritan as the hero of, of this parable. And notice why he's a hero in verse 33. It says, when he came to where this guy was, when he saw him, he had compassion. You might want to underline that phrase. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So he tells this story showcasing love in practice. This is the love that God requires, but what kind of love is the Samaritan showing? Let me give you a few descriptions. You, you see a particular love being shown here. This is a particular love. The Samaritan, when he saw this man, he came to him and he began to help him. A particular man with particular needs at a particular point in time. In other words, the love that is on display here isn't a generic love. It isn't a Facebook kind of love that, that's just kind of generically declared for all people everywhere. This is a particular love for a particular person in a particular situation with particular real-time needs. It is easy for people like you and I to love people in general. It's a whole other ballgame when you are called to love someone particularly. A name and a face. When you are to care for somebody who's hurting in your sphere of influence, who's within your reach to help, and he's a particular person or a particular woman who, whom you might not jive with naturally. But understand the love that is being shown here is a particular love giving to somebody with a name, with a face, flesh and blood, an image bearer. Particular love is being shown by the Samaritan. But not only do you see a particular love here, you see an unbiased love. The Samaritan is going to help this man. And notice that the man isn't described by his race. We don't know if this man was Jewish or a Samaritan. We don't know what ethnicity he held to. And I think that's intentional. This is an unbiased love because race ultimately doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if he was a Jew. It doesn't matter if he was a Samaritan. What mattered is unbiased love. That's the love God requires. A love that is to be given to any person regardless of their race, regardless of their gender, regardless of their struggle. It's an unbiased love. Now, when it comes to caring for those who are hurting in our city and around the world, sometimes Christians uh, paint themselves into uh, a corner by asking, by front-loading all these ridiculous questions. We'll see someone in need and we'll start asking, well, how did they get in that situation to begin with? Well, what decisions did they make over the course of their life? Maybe they're in that situation because they're irresponsible and they just don't know how to do things. So we start front-loading these questions, trying to bias the love that we are expected or required to show those who are hurting in our reach of influence. But here you don't see questions being front-loaded. Now, chances are this man went down this road from Jerusalem to Jericho knowing full well its reputation, knowing that he could be just jumped knowing that he could be left for dead but he went there anyway now a heartless person would say well he should have never gone there in the first place he deserves what he's getting that's a biased love but again you don't see the Samaritan doing that this is a particular love it is an unbiased love but not only that it's a sacrificial love 
Notice what this guy is sacrificing to care for this guy who's hurting. It says he goes to him and he bounds up his wounds and he pours oil and wine. Where did those supplies come from? They came from himself, right? He's sacrificing his own stuff to care for this person. You find him, one, sacrificing his convenience, where he takes time out of his schedule to go and to be with this hurting guy. See, he had some place to go. He was traveling as well. He had a calendar. He had a schedule. He had an agenda. He was living his life, doing his thing. But here, he sacrifices that, doesn't he? And he becomes generous with his time to go meet this particular need in an unbiased way, sacrificing his schedule, sacrificing his time. But he also sacrifices his comfort where he's generous with his possessions. It says after he puts all this stuff on him, he then takes the man and he sets him on his own animal. That's his animal. And he's using his resources to care for this man. He's not outsourcing that to another group. He's not outsourcing that to other, some other system or structure. He's not looking for the government to come through and care for this person. He is taking responsibility to love this particular man who's in a particular situation in this particular kind of way. And so he's meeting these needs practically, sacrificing his time, sacrificing his comfort. From that point on, he's going to have to walk. If he's letting this guy ride his animal, he's walking the rest of the way. But not only that, you find him sacrificing his security as he's being very generous with his money. When he gets to the innkeeper, he pays up two denarii. And then, and then he even says, kind of open-ended, you know, I'm going to repay you when I come back. Anything else you spend for him. Now that innkeeper, there's risk there, right? The innkeeper could have spent, spent however much he wanted to, to care for this guy in need. And this Good Samaritan is committing, look, no matter what's paid, I'm going to pay it. I'm going to take responsibility for this hurting man. This is the kind of love that God requires. A particular love, an unbiased love, a sacrificial love. And after you see this sacrifice being made, then Jesus asks the question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And do you notice he recalibrates the question This guy earlier wanted to know who his neighbor was. Jesus flips the script on that question saying, it doesn't really matter who you think your neighbor is. What matters is, are you neighboring those around you? So he flips the table. He turns the table on the question. But then notice what he says in verse 37. The lawyer responds, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus affirms that. He says to him, you go and do likewise. So this love that God requires that's being illustrated in the parable is a particular love, an unbiased love, a sacrificial love, and lastly, it's a visible love. It is mercy that is being shown. It is a visible love for those who are hurting. So you think about the love that God requires. You read this parable and you're not supposed to walk away thinking, I can go and do likewise. I can do this. Do this. The whole point of the exchange between Jesus and the lawyer and the whole story behind or of the good parable of the Good Samaritan is designed to show you that you cannot carry out the love that God requires. You can't go and do likewise. You need something else. And this is where you have to really dive in deep to understanding what this parable is all about. You see, the good news of the gospel is that the the love that God requires of us is the love that God supplies to us. God asks nothing from us that he himself is not willing to give to us. And so to show you that, I want you to consider the context of this story once again. Come back to the parable of the prodigal of the good Samaritan and think about the love that God supplies. Now turn back one page in your Bible, Luke chapter 9, verse 51. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it's kind of a hinge in Luke's gospel. Luke's gospel is divided up into two big sections, all the way through 941 to 950. And then in verse 51, everything starts moving towards Jerusalem. The story begins to slow down as Jesus is now, check it out, verse 51, setting his face to go to Jerusalem. And everything from that point forward, everything Jesus says, everything Jesus does is to be heard and received under the shadow of the cross. That Jesus is going to Jerusalem to do something for us. He's going to Jerusalem to supply something to us. So you hold on to that and you think about how the love God supplies 
in Christ, how it comes to us, everything, including the parable of the Good Samaritan, must be read under the shadow of the cross. Now look back at verse 33. I'll show this to you in another way. Verse 33. Notice the, the, what goes down in the Samaritan's life. It says, when he journeyed, he came to where this man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now that word compassion is uniquely, is uniquely applied to the person of Jesus in the Gospels. All throughout the Gospels, only one person is ever described as being compassionate. And that one person is Jesus, unless Jesus is telling a story where he's describing someone who's a lot like him. When he's describing someone who's compassionate in the stories that he's telling or in him, him himself. I'll give you two examples. Luke chapter 7, verse 13. There's this moment where a widow loses her son. And when Jesus learns about that, it says he was moved to compassion. And his compassion drove him to action. So he went and rose the widow's son back to life. A resurrection occurred as a result of Jesus' compassion. But then, another instance, Luke chapter 15, where we were last week. The parable of the prodigal sons. That same phrase, when he saw him, he had compassion, is the same phrase used to describe the father in that story. When the the younger son starts to return home and when he sees him, he had compassion. And that compassion drove him to action so that he ran towards him. Compassion is a uniquely Christ-honoring emotion. A Christ-solicited emotion. It is an emotion that, that, Jesus, that, that marked Jesus' life. It's what drove him to do everything that he would do in going to Jerusalem. See, the love that God supplies to us is found, is available in the person and the work of Christ. Just as in the parable of the prodigal sons, the older brother didn't do what it was expected of him, so we needed the other brother. We needed the true brother. We needed the good brother. We needed Jesus. And just as in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the priest and the lawyer, the priest and and the Levite, who did not do what was expected of them, what was needed was an outsider, someone who wasn't a part of that establishment, someone who wasn't a part of that system, to come from the outside and do what needed to be done in that moment. That's where the Good Samaritan comes into play. All that to say is, as you and I think about Jesus tonight and we think about the love that God supplies to us, understand that Jesus is ultimately the Good Samaritan. He is the one who came into the world motivated by compassion for, the, for a hurting world to do for the world what the world could not do for itself. Jesus is the one who came to us the way the Good Samaritan went to this man in the parable. And he loved us in the ways that this Good Samaritan would love him. You think about the love that God supplies to us in Christ. It's a particular love, isn't it? It's not just a generic, abstract love that has no meaning to our lives. It's a particular love. It's so particular that Jesus would know your name. It's so particular that in the end of the story, in the book of Revelation, all the names of those who would be redeemed by Jesus are written down into the, in the book of life. A particular love. Jesus isn't loving anyone generically. He's loving his people particularly. But not only is it a particular love, it's an unbiased love. It's a love that doesn't exclude anyone on the basis of their gender or their race. It doesn't exclude anyone on the basis of their sin. That there's no sin that a human being that can commit that Jesus can't forgive. It's been said that there is more mercy, there is more compassion in Christ than there, are, than there is sin in us. So it is a, an unbiased love. But then you go one step further. It's a sacrificial love, isn't it? Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die as a sacrifice for our sins so that we can be covered, so that we can be forgiven. There's sacrifice. And of course, you would know that when Jesus dies on the cross, that that's God's love made visible, isn't it? So much so that John would write in 1 John, God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While you and I were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. A particular love, an unbiased love, a sacrificial love, and yes, a visible love. This is the love that God supplies each and every one of us in Christ. But understand that if you are someone who's being touched by that love, if you are saying, look, what God requires of me is too much for me to carry, that's why I need Jesus. When you find yourself being loved in Christ in that way, it starts to have an effect. Understanding that the Christian life doesn't mean you become a spiritual sponge. 
who's just soaking in God's love for you. No, you become a spiritual funnel so that when God loves you in this way, the love that he's shedding abroad in your life is intended to flow through you into a hurting and broken world. So this love that God supplies to us in Christ is to flow through us. And if it's not flowing through us, we can raise the question, is, are we, is it flowing into us? We can ask the sober-minded question, do I have eternal life? Am I a believer? Do I trust in the gospel? Is it make, if it's not flowing through me, it's not coming into me. Every time God pours his love into a sinner's life, he intends for that love to flow through that sinner's life. Now, that does not mean that you and I look to the ways in which we love a hurting world as the means of our justification. We do not say, okay, because I'm doing this, God must love me. That's not really how it works. And to give you an illustration of this, let me turn your attention to the book of James. Because the book of James raises several questions about the relationship between our faith in Jesus and the works that we do. Our faith in Jesus and the compassion we exercise in the world that is. And what you find in James chapter 2 is three types of faith being uh, contrasted in that book. The first form of faith is found in James chapter 2 verse 17. James chapter 2, verse 17, we read, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, it is dead. So there is a type of works that should correspond with faith. If love is coming in, love should go out. If we're trusting in Jesus, it should have an effect. Anything else is called dead faith. Faith without works is dead. But then there's another kind of faith that James would go on to talk about in verses 18 and 19. He would write, Rhetorically, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons do that, and they shudder. So there's a dead faith, but then there's a demonic faith, right? A demonic faith that knows what is true, but refuses to submit to that truth and to be affected by it. So there's a dead faith. And there's a demonic faith, but then you get to the third type of faith that James is bringing out. And I think it's the fruit of stories like the Good Samaritan. A third type of faith that could be described as a dynamic faith. A dynamic faith that says, my faith in God is making a real difference in my life so that I'm doing the things that Jesus wants me to do in the world. He would pull up Abraham as an example in James chapter 2 verse 21. Was Abraham, old school cat in the book of Genesis, was Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Was it that act that justified Abraham? And then he goes on and says, no, you see that that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Saying that his justification, that which the lawyer desired in Luke chapter 10, his justification came to him by faith. Because in Genesis chapter, I think, 15, God believed God and he accounted righteousness to him. And then later, he lived out his faith when he was told to sacrifice his son Isaac. So he goes up the mountain in obedience, trusting God to do what is right, even in that devastating, difficult situation. His faith produced works. His faith produced obedience. This is the relationship between the love God requires and the love God supplies. When you are receiving God's love for you, that love is expected to flow through you. So the parable of the Good Samaritan isn't simply about you learning that you should help hurting people. The parable of the Good Samaritan is to show you how you can help hurting people. The way that you can sustain compassionate activity in this world, the way that's generated in you and will flow through you is what? Letting yourself be loved. Let Jesus love you the way he loved the good Samaritan, loved the man that was dying on the side of the road. Receive his love into your life. Let it have its intended effect. And as it's working itself in you, it will work itself through you so that the love that God supplies in Christ through us will be given for others. And we will find ourselves living compassionate lives, engaging in social justice concerns with a backbone, engaging in social justice concerns with, with a sustainability that that type of ministry requires. It is very hard to help hurting people in our city. It's not easy. 
It's emotionally draining. It, is, it drains resources. It is challenging, whether you're talking about people in human trafficking, whether you're talking about the homeless, whatever the needs of brokenness or the forms of brokenness in their city, it is very hard, and you and I cannot do it unless we're letting ourselves be loved by Jesus in this way. The love that God requires us, requires of us, is the love that God supplies to us in Christ, and that love flows through us for others. And so let me ask you, are you, is God's love for you having its intended effect through you? Are you letting God's love move you in ways that it intends to move you? So that you begin to love him in response to his love for you. You begin to love your neighbors as yourself. And you begin to see God doing things through you that he wants to do through you en route to meeting the needs of a broken world. One of our core values here in the Hallows Church is called sacrificial generosity. And the reason why it's one of our core values is because we desire to be a gospel-centered community. But in order for the gospel to be central, it must be functional. And if the gospel's functioning in our hearts and in our lives and in our church as it ought, then we will become a sacrificially generous people, engaging in acts of compassion with sustainability, with sober-mindedness, and with impact. The reason Christianity spread as rapidly as it did in the first few centuries of its existence was because of this kind of love the church was showing for all types of people. That Christians didn't just love love themselves. Christians loved non-Christians. Christians cared for people outside of their community. And it would cause the Emperor Julian to even scratch his head saying, why is it that uh, this superstition among Christians is spreading? Well, it's spreading because not only do they love each other, they love our people as well. If we want to make an impact on this city, we've got to let God supply the love that is needed or the love that he requires Let him supply it to us in the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace to give us grace to be loved in this moment. Give us grace to see ourselves in need of your love. Help us to see how the love that you require of us is too much for us, and so would you supply it to us. God, thank you for the grace of the gospel and the power that is found in Jesus for this type of living so that we might go forth and love likewise. We might go forth and in your power and in your strength and in your love, we might do the things that you want us to do in this city. And God, I pray that you would make us a compassionate community, one that loves our neighbors well, that would care for those who are hurting all throughout this city. Would you give us grace to make an impact for your glory by being compassionate people who are loving likewise in Jesus' name. Amen.